What's the calling of Matthew and the two healing stories that we have? What do they have to do with each other? If you read it closely, one of the important things that's happening in all three of these events is movement. There's a lot of movement going on. Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. Jesus goes to dinner in the house. The leader comes in and kneels before Jesus. Jesus gets up and follows the synagogue leader. Interestingly enough, exactly the same words in Greek and in English as Matthew following Jesus are the same words used for Jesus following the synagogue leader. And given that following, particularly in Matthew, is all to do with being a disciple, kind of opens up the question of why does Matthew's gospel use exactly the same word for Jesus following the synagogue leader? Is, in, is there some idea that Jesus himself is a disciple? Of course, he says in this gospel and a lot in the gospel of John that he only ever says what God gives him to say, God whom he calls his father. The woman who's hemorrhaging blood, she is moving, she comes up behind Jesus. Even a dead girl moves at the end of this story. So it's all about movement. And where's the movement to? Well, it's, it's to houses. Jesus and Matthew go to a house. We don't know whether it's Jesus' house or Matthew's house. Doesn't, it's not clear. The synagogue leader and Jesus go to his house. And the hemorrhaging woman, if we take house to mean what it means for most of us, if we're lucky enough to have one, home, a place where we can be ourselves, where we are just us, then the woman, in a sense, because of her healing, goes into her true self. It's all about movement towards home, to the true heart of where we are from, to the true heart of who we are, the time when we can relax. We no longer have to have a pretense because we're at home, we're safe. The place where we can be who we really are or who we really wish we were. It's all about movement to home, all three of these little stories. And Jesus underlines all of this by saying, go and learn about this. And he's quoting, obviously, Hosea, as we heard Mari read to us. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They don't seem like they're opposites to each other, but they might be. Sacrifice is very bounded. It's got a boundary around it. If you're a good Jew particularly one in Jerusalem, you know when to sacrifice. There's a ritual for that. You know where to sacrifice at the temple. You know how to sacrifice. You know when a sacrifice begins and when it ends. It's very contained. And you know when a sacrifice is done, you can leave it and go and be on your way and live your life. The temple was a whole system about sacrifice. It was effective. It was streamlined and it worked. You could even buy your sacrifice at the site of the temple to make your life even less complicated. It was like a supermarket. It was all there for you. It all seems strange to us now, except that, of course, we have our own sacrifice systems. We sacrifice asylum seekers on the altar of fear and of national security. We treat them all as one group and we all move them away. They're a threat and they've got to be done away with. 
From now on, Kevin Rudd said in 2013, when he was introducing the Pacific Solution, from now on, any asylum seeker who arrives in Australia by boat will have no chance of being settled in Australia as refugees. That's the sacrifice we're willing to make. Now, of course, it's easy for us. Those of us with an Australian passport, it is. That's our sacrifice. It's a system. It's organised. We know when it begins and ends. We know, who, we know who fits into it and who doesn't. We do the same with the poor on the altar of the economy. We've engineered a system and we're engineering it as we speak that is designed to ensure the people spend less money. And the best way to ensure the people spend less money is to make sure they have less money. You don't need to spend, you can't spend money if you don't have it. The whole system that we've got currently designed is designed to make sure that interest rates go up, that there's less money to spend, so that we can control things. Because the most important thing is the economy. And people have to be sacrificed to that. That's just the way the system is. Except, of course, if you're wealthy, then we'll give you a tax break because you will... When you've got a tax break, apparently you will then spend more money which will somehow filter down to the lowest of the low. Because it doesn't work, never has. It's unlikely to do this time. But that's the sacrifices somebody has to make. So we've got our own sacrifice system. But mercy is completely different to sacrifice. If you have mercy... If you have compassion, which is a, another word for mercy, where's the boundary for that? Compassion isn't something you do so much as it's something that you are. It's a state of being, to be compassionate. Where's the border on that? Where's the controls? Where's the bureaucracy that makes it easy to do? It doesn't fit into easy categories. It won't follow, follow the rules. Some years ago, I was in conversation with a man I knew reasonably well who was making some pretty bold statements about Muslims. Muslims are this, Muslims are that, and we shouldn't tolerate that in Australia. Their religion, their practices. And as we continued to talk, he started to talk about his friend down the road who lived in the same street as him, whose name was Muhammad who was Muslim. Oh, yeah, but that's different because Muhammad's a good bloke. We've got systems and we've got controls and then we've got reality. The categories when you come to compassion and mercy are useless. They just don't make any sense. And that's how Jesus is in this story, in these three stories. Because Matthew's in a category as the Pharisees tell Jesus' disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? That category of people. He's a collaborator with the colonizers, the most brutal of empires that have stomped down on the Jews, controlled everything about their lives. And here he is sitting in a tax booth. This is not a story about someone who's realized the error of his ways, and suddenly decided not to be a tax collector anymore. 
He's right in the middle of it. He's sitting in the tax booth when Jesus turns up. He's not was a tax collector, he is one. A deeply divided man. Is he Jew or Roman? Is his allegiance to his people or to the economy that, where he's making money? He's deeply broken inside, split right down the middle of his soul. That's who this person is. But in the house, in the deep part of who he is, in the home where he is invited, he experiences invitation. He experiences welcome simply for being who he is. He experiences the beginning of wholeness, the thing we long for more than anything else, to be whole, to know who we are and to be at peace with that. That's Matthew. And that's mercy. It's not a category. And the leader of the synagogue, he should have been, as it says, the leader of his community. He should be the upright one. That's how you get to be leader, because you live a morally upright life, a good life. But here he is. His family is literally falling apart. His little girl has died. And in the ancient world, remember, illness and premature death and things of that sort, they were markers of what you really were like inside. You can fool us with what you're wearing, but if something terrible happens to you, like illness or the death of one of your children, it's clear that you're not who you say you are. You're a broken person. You're, in fact, an embarrassment to us because you're supposed to be a leader, and here you are with a family falling to bits someone to be avoided, but Jesus goes to his home and he begins to receive a chance to, to re-experience life, to have life begin again. Imagine that experience of losing someone central to who you are as a person, central to your life, and that person coming back. All the rubbish is cleared away. You might notice in the story, Jesus clears out the flute players and all the commotion of the crowd. He said, get out. Goes to the heart and the centre of who this person is and new life comes. The same thing with the woman who's suffering the hemorrhage. She's an outsider. She's unclean because when you've got an issue of blood, you need to go through a cleaning ritual and then you come back into community. But what if it never stops? What if you can't go through the cleaning ritual because you never end up not bleeding? What if you're out of sight of community for 12 long years or forever? Jesus turns to her and he sees her. Two significant things. He's walking one way, he turns, he changes everything, turns and he sees her. And he sees her for who she is, she is because he calls her daughter. Take heart, daughter, he says. Jesus sees not her category or her condition. She's not someone to be avoided or to be ignored. She is daughter. Mercy, not sacrifice. This is the good news. We're not interested in clear, organised, 
bureaucratic boundaries. Jesus doesn't care whether you're male or female, whether you're a leader of the synagogue, the tax collector. All of those categories are completely and utterly meaningless. However much you have earned in your life financially, however well you have done in your family life, however poorly you have done financially, however much of a mess you have made of your family, how well educated you are or how poorly educated, none of those things are worth a hill of beans according to Jesus because it's about compassion and mercy. It's not, well, that's the way things are. Sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. We have to raise interest rates. We have to because the economy demands it and some people will suffer. We have to put people on Manus Island and on Nauru because, well, some people just have to suffer. And there's so many other categories that we put people in. No, according to this, it's always boundless mercy. So be it.